Well, hello and welcome to episode 24 of Yes ABS. I am Anthony Edmondson, voiceover Tony, with my good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. Also known as Haggard Hawks. I never take the cue that you do very well. I know. <laughs> it's like I... The listeners can't see, but I always hold my hand out as if to cue in Paul mm. to introduce himself. I was literally about to say we're nailing these introductions, but then Paul... Had yeah, don't spoil it all. It's uh, it's the effect I have on things when I get involved. Usually, I can't believe we're up to number twenty four. Yeah, we're, we're, we've passed your IQ level now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably several seasons ago. And now, I think really, we've quadrupled the number of people who are currently listening to this. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think we lost everyone in episode one. Yeah, true. I'm going to rescue it today, Paul, because oh, I've Lord. got a theme today. Oh, here we go. What's this? Now, usually, when I say I have a theme. It's Roman history. No! <laughs> I was going to say it's really loose, badly put together theme. That's true, yes. But this is a slightly more better put together theme. Much like that sentence. I was going to say, is it as well put together as that sentence? <laughs> you see, got in there before you. <laughs> um, the theme is the macabre. Okay. So I'm thinking springtime is perfect for a Halloween-style episode. Yeah, instead of doing a Halloween episode, we're just dropping in Halloween facts throughout the year. (laughs) Because that's how we roll. That makes us better than other podcasts, Paul. The audience might disagree on that one. (laughs) Okay, so it's three macabre facts. Three macabre facts today. All right, okay. There's some good ones in here. And for the first one, we are off to Devon, to Bristol. Right. We've been to Devon a few times in this podcast. We have, yeah. I, I tend to stick with what I know. Mm-hmm. And Bristol. Yes. Bristol's not in Devon. Is it? No. Is it Somerset? <laughs> it's like, it used to be in Avon. Is it? Where, where's, where's... Devon's like right down next to Cornwall. Well, that's where Bristol is. No, it's not. Bristol's it up near Wales. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> right, that's it. This is the first time I've ever done this. I'm going to stop the podcast here for a second <laughs> and I'm going to Google this. Right. Okay, we're back, and I'm somewhat humbled because <laughs> we found out that Bristol is its own unitary authority, and it used to border Somerset and Gloucestershire. Even in Gloucestershire. Even in Gloucestershire. Mm. It's close to Devon, though. Devon's right down the road, isn't Wait, it? <laughs> was your fact <laughs> Bristol is in Devon? <laughs> it was. <laughs> Cue the music for the next fact, everybody. I'll take that point. No, this is such an odd interlude. Right. But it's, we're Does in it Bristol. Matter? It doesn't matter at all. Okay, so are you talking about a, Devon or Bristol? That was a, Bristol. Right. That was a complete point of contention <laughs> that's now resolved. Okay. We're going to move on to happier times now. Because do you mm. want to hear some facts about Bristol before I get on to the macabre? Yes. That's a city I've always wanted to visit. It looks very nice. It is. It's a beautiful city. I used to, every summer, I used to have to fly down there every Monday and then fly back on Friday for work. Why? Um, I don't know. I, <laughs> it was never really explained to me why I was doing audit work down there. So we had why we had to fly from Newcastle to Bristol, I don't know. This just sounds like they wanted you out of the office. <laughs> In fact, you're right, there wasn't any clients down there either. I was just left. Like when they got you down there, you were just copying out the encyclopedia. <laughs> I actually did read a couple of books at the airport, WH Smith, over the summer. Oh, like, right. I would read a few chapters every Friday. and then put What, the and never actually buy the book? <laughs> never, never buy the book. I don't know if I've mentioned this story before. On no, them. never. <laughs> because I doubt we would have still been friends had I known that. <laughs> What's wrong with Give that? Give the authors their royalties. Oh, oh of course, a writer. Oh, Dear me, okay. honestly. Right. So we've gone thunderously off topic. Yeah, we have. For this episode so right. far. No but more that, interludes. That cutting room floor is getting covered in. 
can't believe it all of this in. Right. Bristol facts. Okay. Did you know Bristol has its own currency? What? Yes, the Bristol Pound. Oh, what? What does that mean? Um, it was created to encourage people to spend locally, so you can only use oh, the Bristol right. Pound in Bristol. In Bristol, they do stuff like that in the Lake District, don't they? And I think they do. Yes. Yeah. It's officially backed by sterling and everything. Oh, right. Okay. And you can go to Bristol and exchange pounds for Bristols. Um, if you work for the council, you can actually get your salary paid in Bristol pounds. But this smacks of a publicity stunt. <laughs> Come to I Bristol get... and get I your guarantee. No one in Bristol will accept their salary <laughs> in local money. Apparently, the mayor did. I think. Oh, that's yeah. That'll be right. Yeah, I bet he didn't. Really. <laughs> did you also know Bristol used to be in a different time zone? It was ten minutes behind GMT. Oh, really? Because it's that far west. Yeah, quite close to Devon. I'd imagine that being that. I far don't think it's quite as far, far west, west as Devon. <laughs> Um, Stalin's daughter lived in Bristol in the 60s <laughs> after she fled Russia. These facts are all over the place, <laughs> right? Don't worry, I've only got one more. Okay. And the chocolate Easter egg was invented in Bristol. Oh, really? Yes. And that's all you're getting. On oh, the... <laughs> I, I thought you were going like, to move on with that. The was... Easter egg was invented. I'm going to call BS on that. The, those aren't my real facts. Oh, those right. Are, those the, are just like the prep the facts. Gloss. The gloss. Okay. We're onto the macabre. We're back to the right. theme. Right. The theme that we've so horribly lost yes. in the last five minutes. Okay. So, here's my fact. So, from now on, it's yes or BS. Right. Is there a book bound with human skin that sits in a Bristol museum that used to be a dockyard transit shed? Okay. The museum used to be a dockyard transit shed, not the human skin. <laughs> yeah, that would make sense. Now, a bit of the story behind this. Why is there a book bound in human skin in mm-hmm. a museum? Whose skin is it? Ah, it is the skin of one John Horwood. Horwood? Yes, who was executed in 1821 for murder. Right. Now, he was in a relationship with someone called Eliza Balsam. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a short relationship, and apparently she later rejected him. Right. And he started to started a harassment campaign against her. He would kind of go around her house, threaten violence against her. Right. He was just a kind of one of those psycho ex. A bit of a ruffian yes. type. Right. And one day he saw her in town with another man, so he threw a rock at them. Uh, it hit her, not the other bloke. Mm-hmm. So she gets taken to hospital. Mm-hmm. A doctor finds an abscess where the wound was, mm-hmm. possibly from a, an infected bandage that the doctor himself had put on. Oh, right. Okay. But he decides, you know what? I'm going to try trepanning to fix this. Always a good solution. And she dies. Okay. So uh, John Horwood is kind of put on trial for the murder because he was on who originally threw the rock. Right. That caused Eliza to go to hospital. Now, this doctor was called Richard Smith. And he was also kind of an anatomist as well, interested in the human body. Mm-hmm. So he not only performed the surgery on Eliza, but he also expressed a curiosity in the trial itself. So he attended the trial. And once John Horwood was found guilty, he mm-hmm. requested the body be given to him so mm-hmm. he could perform a public dissection of it. <laughs> Which was, it's quite common in the 1800s. Uh, public dissections okay. were quite normal. <laughs> Keep it light, Anthony. Keep it light. <laughs> I, know, I said it. <laughs> I said it was the macabre. <laughs> right. Oh, here's a light fact for you. Did you know the trial took place in a pub? 
<laughs> cool. That's and, slightly lighter in tone than the rest of the story. And a phrenologist was there to help confirm the guilt of John Horwood. There's a, a whole cavalcade of pseudoscience here. He said he had, a, had the cranium of a killer. Uh, so phrenology, for those who don't know, is the old yeah. study of the shape of the head. Yeah, and sort of bumps and lumps and stuff. Yeah, so the way, the, how lumpy your head is. So I don't know, uh, <laughs> don't know what that says about you. But... John Horwood, he was sentenced to be hanged. Right. And shortly after, the body was given to Dr. Richard Smith. He performed the dissection, and as part of that, he had the body skinned as well. But mm-hmm. then he decided to have the skin tanned, oh, and then he wrote a book about the murder and trial and his role in it, and then had the book bound in that tanned skin of John oh, Horwood. Oh, my God. Right. But not only this... He also kept the skeleton of John Horwood in his house <laughs> until he died. I don't know what his wife thought of this. Right. So he had the hanged criminal's skeleton in the skeletons in the cupboard. Ooh. <laughs> so <laughs> Right. I, I should have said, hey, boy, I bet he had skeletons in the closet. <sighs> anyway, to finish that story off, mm-hmm. after he died, the skeleton was given to Bristol University. And have they still got it on display? No, they, it was buried by the descendants of John Horwood right. in 2011. Finally, someone has a little bit of respect. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that is my macabre fact number one. Okay, that's quite a tale. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Right, so you've got a guy who's a bit of a psycho ex. Yes. Attacks his former partner in the street, yes. essentially. Mm-hmm. She then is found to be very poorly. So the doctor tries to treat her. She passes away. So the guy gets done for murder. Yes. He's hanged. Mm -hmm. The guy in the hospital who treated the lady attends the trial. Yes. Requests the the defendant's body Mm -hmm. after he's been hanged. And then not only performs a public autopsy, but skins him. Yes. Keeps his skeleton. Yes. Writes a book about the entire affair and yes. binds it in the man's skin. Yes. You've nailed it in one there, Paul. That's exactly what happened. Right. Well, this is absolutely awful. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of don't know where to go on this. It, it does sound like the sort of pre-Victorian kind of thing that would happen. Mm. They weren't known for their sort of leniency towards criminal types. Mm. Like transportation was bad enough. Whether that would be extended to skinning, dissecting and removing the skeleton of a corpse is another thing. Um, well, you've got to remember at the time the authorities had zero interest in the bodies of criminals at this time. It was mm. like literally, it was a pain to have to go and bury them somewhere. So right. if someone was offering to take the body, they'd say, hey, you go for it, doctor. They'd you probably go do what you want. It. But the whole kind of public autopsy thing is a bit strange. Yeah. Actually, do you remember a few years ago on TV over here, mm. there was that autopsy. Oh, yeah, I remember I think that. it was about 2008 yeah. or 2007. I remember that. So even in our own time, it is not unprecedented mm-hmm. for this to happen. Okay. And I'll tell you what else I know isn't unprecedented is the idea of binding things in skin. Mm. Because I know that you can buy... I know that there are books that have human skin bindings i don't think mine do <laughs> but i know well, they're, um they're bound by your sweat and bloods paul that you pour into them with there's a jagged quote <laughs> <laughs> not, not be using that one um yeah but i know that, like people who have tattoos and things post-mortem that you like to use, have see Ooh, their skin that's interesting. um and i think yeah i think there's a whole sort of subculture of Mm. that sort of thing. Mm. So I know that those 
kinds of books. I think you can buy like wallets and stuff made out of of really? skin. It's quite sort of niche collectible, I think. <clears throat> so yeah, I wouldn't want to own any, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Mm. So I'm kind of coming down on thinking that this is probably true. There's a precedent for that. The whole kind of era sort of makes sense. It's a little bit convoluted how much this man was involved in it that he then decided to write about it in that book. That's all mm. a bit odd. That all sounds a little bit far-fetched, but not enough to make me doubt the whole thing. I think this might be true. My answer? Yeah, I'm going to say yes, this is true. This whole story is true. Ah, <laughs> nice. Oh, good. Yeah, it was a nice little one, that. I think I, uh, someone mentioned Bristol in passing the other day. I went, ooh, I've been there quite a lot. I see. I see what I can dig up. Mm. Also, oh, you didn't know about this at all. Before no, you I didn't started. know about this before. I knew like about this museum that they yeah. converted on the docks is an old railway. Actually, it's loads of museums and like, it's a beautiful city, Bristol. I'd love to try and get back there when I'm not working, working so I can yeah. actually go and enjoy the place. It must mm. be an interesting place to go. No, I've never heard of this, but it's on display. Yes, yeah, I think it's in the basement. I don't yeah. think I'd want to see. That's the first thing I'd go and see. <laughs> yeah, I'll be in the coffee shop while you're down there in the basement. <laughs> to Bristol. <laughs> Right, well, that was a nice fact to start the episode off That's with. That's cool. Uh, skeletons and human skin books. <laughs> you know, nothing says light-hearted comedy podcasts like <laughs> murder and an autopsy. <laughs> I promise yeah. next week I'll do something nice and right. friendly. That's There's something fluffy coming next week. Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah, well, now, I'm unfortunately, straying into a subject that occasionally pops up and occasionally we um, kind of show our ignorance of. We're, Is it science? <laughs> we're going into science. Ooh. And we're going into astronomy. Ooh. Which has come up a couple of times. We had a fact about um, someone who tried to start a country on the moon, I think. Yes. And we had the um, the treaty that stops you from weaponizing the moon and stuff yes. like that. We also had mercury facts as well. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Ooh. The mercury's shrinking or something. Yes. Yeah. Kind of along a similar theme, we're going to talk about minor planets. Mm, okay. This is small planet, not planets full of miners. <laughs> yeah, planets populated wholly by children is, <laughs> is uh, the correct definition. No, the correct definition is any astronomical object that orbits the sun or a similar star mm-hmm. uh, that isn't a planet or a comet. Gotcha. So um, asteroids and all sorts of things like that are dwarf planets. Like Pluto is technically a minor planet mm. as well. I think. At a rough estimate, how many of these do you think have been discovered? Ooh, I think there's um, there's a number in the thousands now. Because mm. I, I remember reading when, when poor little Pluto got knocked off. Yeah. The family of planets. Yes. And then I remember reading somewhere that there were thousands of these little planetoids. Not right. Like yeah. Low <clears throat> thousands or high thousands. I could say low thousands. I'd say two and a half thousand. Oh wow, seven hundred ninety-four thousand <laughs> currently. Oh. Yeah, oh. This is a... <laughs> it's rather oh. a lot of them knocking Ouch. around. Um, yeah, Ig- ignorance the... point number one. <laughs> yeah, which I the reason I asked you that is because I was absolutely amazed that that's how many there are. Mm. Um, do you know what the first one was? It's also the largest of all of these it's quite quite well known it's a pub quiz question i think Ooh, quite it'll be some sort of old greek or roman god name. yeah it is it's series ah. which is i think an agricultural god or mm. something like that discovered in 1801 it's the largest of these minor planets also the 25th biggest thing in the entire solar system so it must be pretty big mm. orbits between mars and jupiter in the kind of asteroid belt and originally like the planets themselves these minor planets were kind of given mythological names and the idea was that if it was what was called a belt object in other words something that kind of did a circular orbit 
it was given a female name, and if it was something a little bit more eccentric that went like a weird route, it was given a male name. Ooh, do you know why that was? I think it's probably just because the first one was given a female name, and the next one after that, I think, was Eros. They gave mm. the name Eros, and that happened to have a bit of a, a wobbly kind of orbit, mm. and that kind of established the sort of setup. I should say all of this part is completely true. <laughs> we're not we're not at the fact yet, but they turned out as there was that there are so many of these things that they couldn't kind of keep doing that. So they relaxed all of the rules, and now you can kind of name them pretty much after. A, whatever you want. You discover them, apparently, so you observe them. If they're seen twice and you can track where they're going and it isn't, it hasn't already been described, then you get to name it yourself. Ooh. Okay. Is this... Yes, no, we're not oh, there yet. Still, still true. <laughs> so as soon as it kind of gets logged, like, it's given like a code number based on the date. So there's, there's one called 1983 CX2. So the letters are just a sort of random designator, as far as I can tell. 1983 was the year, and the number two is the fact that it was the second one discovered that year. Mm. Uh, and that one is called Paul. Oh, I, I looked go. to see if, if in this uh, three quarters of a million, if there was an Anthony, but there isn't. <laughs> you're, you're, Unfortunately, you're yeah. You, there, you know what? There is an Annette. <laughs> my mother's name yeah yeah, yeah, yeah but no there isn't an anthony unfortunately oh. but yeah 3525 paul is currently um mm. orbiting the sun somewhere along with this paul it, it, so it's given this code name and then once you can kind of fit the brief and say yes this is a completely unique object then you can give it your own name so long as you fit these rules it, they now have to be one word that didn't used to be the case um, you were allowed to put a space in them mm. so number 9007 do you know what that might be called Oh, go on. James Bond. No. <laughs> 007 is called James Bond, yeah. But uh, now it has to all be one word. So uh, there's one called Anne Frank, which doesn't have a space in the middle of it. Mm. It's just all one word. Um, and you're now only allowed 16 characters. So it has to be quite quite short. And if you want to name it after a, a military figure or after some kind of military event, um, it has to be at least 100 years ago. So it can't be recent history, apparently. That's another one of the little rules. But another of the rules now added to this list is that you can't name them after pets. Okay. Okay. And this is, this? is the yes or BS. Right. right. In August 1971, an astronomer called James B. Gibson discovered uh, one of these minor planets that was given the designation 1971 QX1. Okay. okay, and this is before some of those rules that we've just gone through had kind of been implemented. So back then, you could name them after your pets. So he goes, I work all over the world. I work in Argentina and I work in Mexico and all sorts of different countries. And my constant companion on these trips is my pet tabby cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, in the official IAU, the official astronomical designation of this this minor planet the description that it gives is of a pet cat that was imperturbable logical intelligent and had pointed ears <laughs> so the cat and hence now this minor planet is called mr spock okay. <laughs> so he writes this down he, he tracks it he logs it all correctly when it reappears and it goes through all the system yeah, it's now given this name of Mr. Spock, this this asteroid orbiting the sun somewhere. Um, now, you are allowed names from popular culture. So there's one called TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one called Enterprise, number mm-hmm. 9777. Uh, 1697 is called Blue Peter. Really? Yeah. Oh. Um, 6433 called Enya. <laughs> hey, go on, Enya. Yeah. Um, Not so, in the ocean anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you are, are allowed popular culture. 
But when it when the kind of news broke that he'd called this not after Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Is it Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Thank you. Um, they, they not called it after that, Mr. Spock. He called it after his pet cat. Suddenly there was kind of a little bit of an uproar that he wasn't being particularly serious about naming this thing. So the IAU, International Astronomical Organization, who's in charge of all these names and things, uh, put this rule down saying that you can't name them after your pets. You can name them after family members, mm. but you can't name them after pets. And it was James B. Gibson's pet tabby cat, Mr. Spock, that started this whole rule off. <laughs> okay, first question would be, mm-hmm. um, well, the complaining always oh, named it after his cat, Mr. Spock. Mm. So was the cat actually called Mr. Spock? Yes. But because the cat is logical. Yeah, the cat is imperturbable, logical, intelligent and had pointed ears. He's obviously been named after Mr. After Spock Mr. in the Spock. TV show. Yeah. So I would imagine people would be fine with that. If he said, I've named this after Mr. Spock because I'm a huge Star Trek fan, I mm. don't think there would have been a problem. But because uh, he said, I've named it after my pet cat, Mr. Spock. See, for me, the implication would be you would know he was a Star Trek fan because he's named his cat Mr. Spock. But it's his pet cat whose <laughs> okay. name has gone down. <laughs> okay, well, I'll not labour that. <laughs> whose name's gone down in like the official designation. Part of me makes me think this is true simply mm-hmm. because... It's science. <laughs> <laughs> no, even better than that, because you know literally nothing about Star Trek. True. So We've e- established that. Even Mr. Spock, you wouldn't know to associate the word logical with him. But maybe I looked up his character on Wikipedia and that's how he was described. True. But would you lower yourself to some sort of pop culture... <laughs> Hedonism of the internet. I love Star Trek. What are you talking about? I've <laughs> oh, seen yeah. all of the shows. <laughs> <laughs> so that is what immediately makes me think that mm-hmm. this is true. It sounds like it should be true as well. Mm-hmm. But... It's actually, I mean, it's a quite a fairly straightforward story. It's mm. just he named this after his cat. It is. And that's, that's what makes me suspicious because it's so straightforward. It's like it's a symbol... This is it. Can't name it after pets anymore because mm. he named it after his pet cats. Yeah. And but I'm, I'm going to stick with true, though. Because you are, I can tell you're like wavering on the I edge. Was. Yeah. I'm literally basing this on your knowledge of lack of knowledge of Star Trek. <laughs> well, I know all about Star Trek. Name any other characters other than Mr. Spock. Um, for, um, is that going to be Frank? <laughs> Frank. Captain Frank. Yeah, there Captain you go. Fra- Captain Kirk. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. Um, the other ones? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, that's it. Scotty. Oh, hey, there you go. Was he the uh, engineer? He was. Scottish guy. He was. Yeah. Well done, Paul. Thank you. I was going to give you a bonus point for that, but I'm... I'm Imagine. <laughs> for something so <laughs> pathetic, you don't deserve it. Maybe after all these years, some of it's filtered in. <laughs> right, that's it. Final answer. I think this is true. Okay. You can't name astronomical objects after pets because of a cat called Mr. Spock. I think that's true. Okay. That story. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. have you deliberately done this and <laughs> thrown in Star Trek? No, I'll go back. It's true. Final answer. Stop. <laughs> Final answer. It's true. He's having another crisis here. Okay. Down, Are you yeah. happy? I am. Right. True? Yes. That story. Mm-hmm. Is true. Ah, <laughs> I just knew you wouldn't even know two words associated with Star Trek in, on any level. Um, yeah, pretty much. Oh, I'm getting good at this logic game. Yeah, no, oh, that, that's, I could um, logic, logic like Spock. 
See, it's just gone completely over my head again. I right. didn't even pick up on it. Jeez. Well, anyway, after the embarrassment of 6-0 in the first episode, mm. I feel I'm, I'm pulling back. Mm-hmm. I'm slowly pulling mm. back. Well, before I go on to my next fact, I'm just incredulous that there's no planetoids named Anthony. I'm no. going to pick one of the unnamed ones and call it Anthony, just for the yeah, crack. Yeah, you should do. Small, irregular. <laughs> Cold and isolated. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh it, I, would, it would fit perfectly. I, I'm struggling to recover now, actually. Yeah. So I'm you just gonna... just keep setting these jokes up. <laughs> right. Anyway, we're moving back to the macabre. Okay. We're back onto my theme. Oh, here we go. We're trying. Rest... Someone made a house out of flesh. <laughs> it's not that bad. Right. This okay. One, this one's a lot less. Macabre. Right. This one's more of a mystery than the macabre. You love these unsolved mystery I do, stories. I do. But there might be some theories at the end of this that I'm going to run through. Okay. So, we are, because we mentioned last week the Napoleonic Wars briefly in passing, and we are talking about Napoleon's invasion of Spain. Oh, right. Okay. Now, at the start of the Napoleonic Wars, Spain was actually allied to France. Mm-hmm. But when they lost the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, mm-hmm. the Spanish fleet was all but wrecked. Um, their land armies were in virtual disarray. Mm. They weren't too keen to continue being allied with Napoleon. They weren't just pulling their weight anymore in the alliance. So Napoleon right. just decided, I'm just going to annex Spain and Portugal while I'm there. All right, okay. Just for the crack. How did that go for him? Um, very badly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because this is where you get the word uh, gorilla from. Oh, guerilla, ah, guerilla. Right. yeah, uh, in Spanish, which means uh, well, it's like a um, like an a, a insurgent, isn't it? Yes, but literally little war. Oh, yes, yes. literally, yeah, literally little war. Yeah, like because the Spanish couldn't really fight back against the full might of Napoleon's mm. standing army, so they had thousands of irregular guerrilla militias. It was mm. the first widespread guerrilla campaign in history really right so it was between 1807 and 1814 he tried to quell spain he tried to just put down the rebellion down there Mm -hmm. he installed his brother joseph as king of spain that didn't really help either Mm -hmm. but as part of this the british were trying to help arm and assist these guerrillas in Spain, yes. Oh right, okay. Because they had a. This England, is all. This is all true. Yeah, by England the way. and Spain don't have the best reputation military-wise. They wise. don't. But when they're fighting the French, yeah, it's true. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they, <laughs> we put, put put those old differences, differences aside. aside. <laughs> and we're brothers in arms, right? Because um, Britain was still a very strong ally of Portugal. I was going to say that's the, the, the longest alliance in history. Or something, it isn't is, it? I think, definitely in Europe, mm. maybe in history as well. Still mm. allies today as well. So the British had a lot of bases in Portugal, and uh, they, of course, had Gibraltar. So they would run ships and supplies up the coast um, to try and supply these right. guerrillas. Right. We're kind of we're going to talk about a certain group of guerrillas called the Mikeles. Right. Which are they're the Catalan irregular militias. So they're okay. up in the mountains near Barcelona. Yeah. So they would come come down from the mountains, strike the French, run back up into the mountains again. Right. And the British would send their own like British soldiers up to assist them. Um, so they would send Marines up there, kind of like the commandos of their day. This is kind of like northeast Spain. Northeast Spain, right? Yes. But the British were kind of helping run insurgent operations all over. Right. Okay. All over Spain. This is okay. all true. Right. But we're not onto the macabre. Okay, I was, I'm wondering where this is going. Staying in these kind of mountainous areas of northeast Spain mm-hmm. were 
going to the Prades Mountains. And it was here where the British based about 100 soldiers to help the Mikeles. Mm -hmm. And they had spies in various safe houses in cities on the coast of Spain. Right. So they would get word down to the British spy. They would get word to the ships by a carrier pigeon. Right. And then they would supplies would come run in. Okay. But it was in the winter of January 1813 where this mystery starts to unfold a bit here. So okay. from now on, from this point on, okay. this is yes or BS. So there was a delirious British soldier came running down from the Prada's Mountains in January. Mm-hmm. He made it to the safe house in Tarragona, which is on the East Coast. Right. He was delirious and talking about demons in the mountains. Right. And he handed over a written message from the colonel, uh, Colonel Adrian Tanner, who was commanding the British troops up in this mountain base. Right. They had planned to kind of spend the winter up there and then restart the campaign in the spring. Mm -hmm. So it was unusual for this British spy in Tarragona to get anyone knocking on his door. Right. Say, oh, this, this, everything's, we need like an immediate rescue. It's, there's demons in the mountains. The soldiers are coming back down. We need a ship here in the next couple of days to get them out. Okay. And the message from Colonel Tanner reads as thus. Right. So we make immediate retreat to the landing point at Salu Bay. Our winter supplies are lost and the Mikeles have dispersed into the mountains. We are besieged by hellish spectres. They rise as mist each night. They do not kill, but pull men into the darkness. Screams echo for hours afterwards. They seem to take no more than ten each night, but the men refuse to move except in daylight. Rifle fire and explosives are ineffective. Attempted to light torches, but the weather has made this ineffective. We travel with haste through the day. Snows are thick and progress slow. Request immediate ship evacuation. So, you obviously you're the British spy in this safe house. Okay. You're thinking, what the hell is this all about? Right. You think you've... He immediately thought that this was a deserter and... Yeah, right, and he's uh, concocted this story. He's concocted this story, and but he wanted to get back to the UK. So mm-hmm. he thought, oh, if I get a rescue ship, I'll concoct this crazy story. I'll get taken back to Britain, mm-hmm. but everyone else is still up in the mountains. Mm. So the spy, he sends his carrier pigeon out to the closest ship that he was communicating with was the HMS Madras, which was moored nice. about 40 miles off coast, sailing up and down, waiting for messages, keeping an eye out for French ships, that right. sort of thing. And they said, we need a rescue ship to come to Salu Bay. We're expecting our Royal Marines back in a few days. Something mm-hmm. something has happened. Right. So the rescue party arrives in Salu Bay, but nobody turns up after five days. They said that should be more than enough time to get down from the Prada's Mountains to Salu Bay. Mm-hmm. So the ship, the HMS Madras, leaves again, says if anything happens send another carrier pigeon and we'll come back. Okay. But in the meantime, if you need anything, or if you need us to go get the boys from Gibraltar, we'll uh, pop back. Right. But there were no more messages. So they get back up there in the spring and they find the camp completely abandoned. Mm-hmm. No bodies, no evidence of any sort of struggle of any kind, but these hundred marines just disappeared. Right. The theories behind this. Now, these men had been kind of fighting this guerrilla war for about four or five years at this point. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them hadn't been home. And the first theory is the desertion theory, that Colonel Tanner actually concocted this nonsense. Oh, this is crazy. Demons have taken us in the night. Mm -hmm. And he's actually then dispersed with the Mikeles and gone to live 
with the Catalans in the mountain region. Right. Which this is kind of backed up by the fact that the original soldier who arrived in Tarragona, he disappeared the next day after sending his re- giving his report to okay. the spy who was based there. Right. Which kind of, they think he might have then gone back up into the mountains to then desert. Right. With so the they just of sort of went to live in Spain. Yes, went right. to live in Spain. Okay. But they concocted this ridiculous story that they were so tired of fighting in the mountains for so long. Yeah. They, they just were done. Right. They didn't want to do it anymore. Um, a second theory is that it was a rival group of Michelets maybe working for the French. Right. And they would only attack at night and that they were kind of dressed up. And okay. And make weird, strange noises in the night to try and in- intimidate or frighten the soldiers right. into submission. That sounds and less likely. That sounds less likely than a desertion. And the third theory is demons exist and they were killed by demons. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So that is my second macabre story. That's interesting. Did this happen? I like this. Mm. Um, Yeah, you keep coming out with these unsolved mysteries every so often. Mm. I think this is one of the best stories you come out with. Mm. Okay, so Napoleonic kind of era, English troops fighting with Spanish guerrillas against the French. Yes. This has been rumbling on in the mountains for years. Yes. And then at random... A, a British soldier turns up at a English spy's hut. Safe house. Safe house. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a hut. That would be a bit more suspicious if it was just a hut. Right. He was and obviously it, a Spanish-speaking spy. He was living right. in Tarragona. So he's at his safe house um, with this story Yes. Um, that they're being picked off one by one in the night by mm. monsters. Okay. And... That spy, he's, he's basically waiting there for... To send messages to the Royal Navy. For, yeah. We need supplies at this point. Or yeah. We need... He's just waiting for intelligence. He's waiting for intelligence to relay back to the fleet. Okay. And what does he tell the fleet? He says he didn't... He says he's not... Something is up, but we need a rescue. Uh, he couldn't confirm what had happened, but... Right. He was of the understanding that British soldiers needed rescue. Right. And to come to this point. And the reply was... Uh, yep, we're on the way. We'll be there in a couple of days. Okay. And did they ever turn up? Yes, they did turn up. And uh, they... Was that in the spring when they went up? No, they came immediately because oh. they, they thought it was an emergency rescue. Right. So they came to Salou Bay, which is where the colonel said that's where we need rescue from. Right. One of the safe harbours that the British used right. on the East Coast. And there was no one there? There was no one there. Okay. Okay. Right. This does sound plausible. It's a good story. Mm. Um, you told it very convincingly as well. Mm. And very kind of enthusiastically. Mm. And I know that you like your mystery stories. Mm. I think if you'd made it up, I think the details might have been a little bit patchier. And I don't know if you would have been as confident. Mm. But you've had long enough to prepare this. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you've just concocted it so much. The theories make sense that after that long, yes, they would be kind of quite keen to either go home or just kind of, I mean, Spain's lovely. <laughs> I'd stay in the north of Spain if I could. Especially, especially the, 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 the mountains up there. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, so that kind of makes sense. And I guess after that long of kind of working with the local groups and militias and stuff, they mm. would have made friends and probably... And that's kind of the theory what, gone local theory. Mm. So yeah, that makes sense. It's a nice little spooky story though. Mm. I like it. 
Uh, yeah, I think this might be true. Yeah, I'm kind of going to say that it's true more because I want it to be true. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I could see me writing a screenplay about this. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah, this is good. I like it. I'm going to say this is true. Final answer? Yes. I made all of that up. Oh, no. <laughs> I had a feeling, you know. I wrote the this, the colonel's message and everything. Oh, yeah. See, I was thinking about that and you used the same word twice. In, ah, did I? Yeah. Ineffectual. You see, I was trying to keep the short the sentences deliberately short. As yeah. If it was like a, a commander writing just the basics. <sighs> this is what needs to get said. Hey, you're getting better at this. Ah, you know. Oh, it's a good story. That was a good story. Right. I, I'm not going to write that screenplay. Because <laughs> I'm going to gonna write it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to split the credit with you. <laughs> That's a good story. But it is no. completely true that the British were assisting right. the guerrillas throughout Spain. Is there th- any precedent of like a, a story like this, of like people trying to use the supernatural to escape? They might be. So you just concocted this? I just this. concocted this whole thing. <sighs> right. I kind of wanted that to be true. <laughs> I really wanted it to be true now as well, because it's like, that sounds really cool. Yeah, that I was, was going to really add good story. another detail by saying in that region, there were a lot of surnames that were English surnames. Oh, because right. Because they okay. married in, but I thought, ooh, that's yeah. maybe one step no, too No, no, that would have been a good deal. That's uh, good. Ah, oh, that was convincing. Ah, oh, thank you. I worked hard on that one. Oh, I can tell. <laughs> it paid off as well. That's a good story. Okay. Right. For hours of effort, I've got a point. <laughs> right. I kind of wish that was true, you know. That was such a good story. My screenwriting career is about to take off. <laughs> uh, right. Um, you went with an odd sort of moment from history, and I'm going with a kind of odd story from history as well. But before we get on to that, I'm going to give you some facts about someone called Maria Salomea Swodowska. Okay. Do you know who that is? I don't. That's Marie Curie. Yeah, that was her birth name. She was born in Warsaw in 1867. Uh, she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. She's also the first person and the only woman to this day to win twice. And she's the only person to win in two separate sciences. Hey. I didn't know that. Yeah, she won uh, in physics in 1903 and chemistry in 1911. Uh, famously discovered polonium with her husband. Do you know why she called it polonium? I, no, I don't actually. Because she was born in Poland. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. I didn't. I didn't know that either. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and very famously, they kind of didn't fully understand what they were dealing with. So now mm. their notebooks are all still radioactive with uh, radium. Really? Yeah, radium two 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 six, and it has a, a half life of sixteen hundred years. So they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be joking. untouchable for a long time. <laughs> you can actually. I didn't know this, but you can actually still go and. A request to see her notebooks. Mm-hmm. They're in a lead-lined box in uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. But you have to kind of sign a health waiver to say, I agree to do this and take the risks on myself. I wouldn't... I, I don't know. See, I don't know anything about radi- how radiation works, mm. but would it really just be kind of be pumping out radiation onto someone? I think so, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And I kind of knew that her books were radioactive, but mm. everything was radioactive, her clothes and her furniture and Jeez. even her corpse. Jeez. So she's um, she's interred in uh, the Pantheon, which is a big mausoleum in Paris. Mm. But her coffin has an inch of lead around it. Really? Yeah. Um, they really kind of didn't know what they were dealing with. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's a nice light story. <laughs> anyway, say, she's an absolute you, you hero. You have a go at me. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, by the way, Barry, everything was radioactive. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, she's an absolute hero, but, mm. yeah, a, a heck of a story attached to her. But on the subject of what you could say kind of the history of 
um, nuclear science. Mm. My yes or BS fact mm -hmm. took place on the 23rd of January, 1961. Okay. okay? So everything about Marie Curie, completely true. Uh, this is now a yes or BS. Mm. Okay. So on that night, just after midnight, a B-52 plane took off from uh, an Air Force base in Goldsboro mm -hmm. in North Carolina. And it was getting refueled in flight when they noticed that there's a big leak in the right side fuel tank in the wing. Okay. So they radio in and say, well, what do we do? So they go, right, fly off over the coast, burn off as much fuel as you can, and then land back at the same base. Okay. Okay. But within three minutes, they'd lost 17 tons of fuel. Really? This leaks just got worse and worse and worse. I didn't even know like a, a plane could hold 17 <laughs> tons yeah. of fuel. Uh, 38,000 pounds worth of fuel has gone in, in three minutes. This Jeez. leak is horrifically bad. Um, so bad, in fact, that the pilot begins to lose control of the aircraft. So he orders the eight crew to eject. Some of them do. Unfortunately, two of them die when the um, aircraft begins to kind of splinter apart in the air because it's so out of control. But there were at least some survivors from this. So plane breaks apart. And its cargo is sort of thrown into the air. Mm. And its cargo was two four megaton Mark 39 nuclear warheads. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these get thrown into the air. Mm. Okay. Um, one of them, uh, luckily, lands in very muddy ground mm -hmm. uh, in next to a tobacco field mm. close to, um, n not far from actually, from, from Goldsboro, North Carolina. It hit the ground estimated at 700 miles an hour. Um, but it sort of fell into the ground. So the, the parts of it were found sort of 20 feet below, the, like, <laughs> below the surface. <laughs> and it, when they discovered it, it was armed, but a high voltage switch had been flicked. Um, and needed to be flicked back in order for it to be fully off. Because I think that's one thing I did learn about nuclear weapons. You always have to activate them. Mm. Like it's, I think, I think it's unlikely they'll just go off yes. from an impact. Yes. So the, this high voltage thing had never been set. Uh, so that one was armed, but it wasn't going to explode. The other one. As it came out of the aeroplane, they, they both have parachutes attached, so they do have sort of fail-safes. <laughs> forget, forget about the, the crew. <laughs> <laughs> they do have sort of fail-safe like sort of safety features attached to them. Mm. And one of them is that they have a parachute so that they're not going to hit the ground t too hard. Mm. So this one, the parachute did open up correctly, became tangled in a tree, and it kind of struck the ground standing upright, mm. um, sort of hanging from this parachute, but it, it did hit the ground. And when they investigated it, originally this was reported in the local newspaper that there was absolutely no chance of this going off whatsoever. But actually, under a Freedom of Information request in 2013, so this is a good long while after this has happened, it was revealed that there are four separate arming mechanisms and three of them had armed in this sort of fallout of the plane. The only thing that stopped it from going off was a single switch marked safe slash arm. So mm -hmm. if something, even one of the branches of this tree or something, had knocked that one switch, as soon as it hit the ground, it would have gone off. Mm. Uh, with 250 times the power of Hiroshima. <laughs> wow. <That laughs> um, field's yeah. gone then. <laughs> uh, the Freedom of Inf Information request said that it had a 100% kill zone of eight and a half miles radius. So from where it is, kind of draw eight miles circle <laughs> around <laughs> it. And, yeah, Boom. pretty powerful stuff. Um, so yes, there is now a sign in Eureka, North Carolina, which dismisses this entire thing as just widespread disaster averted. That's all that it says. Okay. But yeah, way back in 1961, um, a potential disaster of hmm. 
immense danger was accidentally averted. Okay, a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned it; just one switch could have set it off. Mm-hmm. See, my again, I don't. I've never built a nuclear weapon. I, <laughs> but never. I thought you were going to put one on the moon, weren't you? <laughs> well, I'm I'm in the process of building one. The arming mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine you'd have to like they would be behind some sort of protective panel to prevent this sort of thing. Like mm. you'd have to either unscrew something or unlock a panel and then you would arm everything and then mm. release it so it for, doesn't feel likely that all of these switches would kind of flick on mm. the way down mm-hmm. just by hitting a tree mm. i don't know i've never armed a nuclear war <laughs> again which is, <laughs> this is why i'm like because i've never seen one up close i don't know for certain... apart from the one you've made yourself <laughs> <laughs> that's more of a hydrogen bomb really um where was the plane flying to? So it oh, left I don't know that. Gold. Yeah, it left um, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Okay, but you don't know where it was going to? No. Or why it was transporting two nuclear no. warheads? You say it was a B-52 B-52, well. yeah. I just know that a B-52 is a military plane. <laughs> our, <laughs> Which is why I picked it for this story. I our mean, uh, <laughs> wheelhouses of knowledge are so different. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't mili- even know how, military history is not my thing. <laughs> I don't even know how we get along with each other. Like... <laughs> right. So one of them is kind of stuck 20 feet in the mud. Yeah. That's kind a of hell of a... Splintered apart. Um, but that one was kind of the safer of the two. Mm. That, that one had fully and not again, primed. I'd imagine if it's getting 20 feet down... Then it's bound to hit some sort of rock or obstruction. Because again, I thought just from watching archaeology shows that when you dig, there's always rocks and stuff. Mm. Like it's very rare you'll get solid twenty feet of earth. Earth. Mm. So I'm suspicious okay. generally on this one. Okay. But and the fact that you've caught it, it was a town called Eureka. Eureka, yeah. That this makes me more suspicious <laughs> as well. It's like you've just plucked all of this. Out your head when mm-hmm. you're in Starbucks. Oh, God, I've got five minutes left. <laughs> like, I've got to head over. <laughs> what do I know about nuclear warheads? Nothing. Traffic's bad. Got to get moving. <laughs> that oh, would stop me. Two nuclear warheads didn't explode. <laughs> so, on that basis, okay. I'm hoping logic prevails with me again. And I'm going to say this is BS. Okay. Final answer? Yes. That story mm-hmm. is true. Really? Yeah. That's. It That's was, really like, amazing. I like, know. It's kind of terrifying as it well. Is. Yeah. The reason why we kind of don't really know where they were going or why, what they were doing um, mm. is because not all of this has ever actually fully been released, as best I can really? tell. And it's massive. it was massively played down at the time. Mm. That it was just, oh, it's crashed, but, you know, we, we really know what we're doing. So there was Jesus. never any danger. And then it was, you know, four God, decades it's, later. It's like we dropped two nuclear bombs. <laughs> yeah. Oops. And they came pretty close to going off. Like how populous was the area that they landed I in? I don't know. It, the Goldsboro and Eureka. Eureka is quite a large town, I think. Mm. Uh, but Goldsboro is not particularly massive. Mm. And it says that where it landed was sort of quite remote farmland. But if it's an eight and a half mile radius. So, yeah, I mean, they do have fail safes attached to it. Even in the early days of this, they did have parachutes to sort of soften (laughs) the blow and stuff. Uh, It was a bit of a freak accident that Mm. that a plane had taken off with this bad a fuel leak. It was 20 feet in the mud. Parts of it, yeah. Underground. Yeah. Jeez. Apparently it hit the ground at like Mach 1 or something. It was ridiculous. 
Um, but yeah, it's a completely true story that there was potentially this massive disaster on the eastern seaboard. Really, things for me to keep in mind as I build my own device. <laughs> <laughs> Well done, Paul. Um, that's mm. almost like a macabre fact for you. So you're, oh, yeah, you're yeah, kind of you're joining my theme for a bit. I, I know, I kind of strayed into history as well. You did. Don't it's... worry, I'm on safer ground for the last one. Oh, God, it's going to be literature of classical music, <laughs> isn't it? But before we get on to that one, mm-hmm. we're on to my final fact. Okay. And we're going to finish on creepy photographs. Oh, right, okay. Again, this the perfect one... medium yeah, for say. an audio. I've done this a lot of times now. I've picked something that really mm. should be visual, but yeah. I think it's a great test of how I describe things. Again, just like that sentence. We're moving on very quickly. Yeah. Who doesn't like having <laughs> photographs described to them? Well, we'll get to it. It's more the device in the photograph that I'm going to describe, okay. which is more interesting. Right. Now, if you might remember last season, we talked about Elmer McCurdy, who yes. was the, the kind of... The corpse that travelled the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. But he was famous because as outlaws at the time, they had pictures taken of them. Yes. And we also mentioned the Victorians used to have pictures oh, taken. Oh, yes. Yeah. So as I was doing, like, researching creepy photos, mm. like, I kind of got into down a rabbit's hole. If you Google it, Victorian death portraits... <laughs> You... <laughs> I do not want it's... to know what your laptop search history is. <laughs> I believe if you Google Victorian death photographs, I believe my my arrest is imminent. <laughs> but uh, no, this it's absolutely fascinating. Like they'll not just lie people down to take pictures; they'll pose them oh. in like suits and they'll stand them up. They'll have... Oh yeah, and the people posed with them. Yes. My one point of reference for this is that horror film, The Others, that Nicole Kidman was in. <laughs> it's a great film. Yeah. It's years ago, actually. Yeah, yeah. But to kind of cheer myself up after all of this macabre, right. macabre searching yesterday, mm-hmm. um, I looked at smiling Victorian photos. Oh, right, okay. And Not smiling Victorian death photos. <laughs> no, no, Just no, that would be, smiling Victorians. That would be too far. But no, like if you Google smiling Victorians as well, it's, it's you see Victorians like pulling faces with each other. In, oh, right, in okay. Kind of funny poses, that sort of thing. Right. So that, if you want to get to be cheered up, Google that. Right. And as part of that, a photo popped up in my scrolling of a topless Mark Twain. <laughs> I don't know why he decided to have that picture taken. We're really going off the reels on this last fact. <laughs> no, don't worry, it's a quick fact, this one. Okay. And he, he's, got, he's got a very hairy chest. <laughs> Out was... of all the photographs I thought you were going to describe, a topless Mark Twain is not only the least likely, but the least wanted. I, <laughs> well, you tell that to Mark Twain. He, was, well, he, he looks pleased as punch mm. in his picture of himself. I don't mm. know why. I'm mm. going to have to research that and maybe get a bonus podcast. Like, why did Mark Twain pose topless? <laughs> or maybe I'm reading why, too why much. Why indeed? You can much. design the cover for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and record it by myself. <laughs> but onto the macabre photos. So the photo I'm going to talk about is a picture of something called the isolator helmet. Right. Now, can you guess what an isolator <laughs> helmet might be? It's presumably some sort of device that isolates you from everyone around you. Is that right? Yes. You Do you happen to have one right now? <laughs> For all of our listeners to, to put on so they don't have to hear the rest of this fact. Right. So in this picture... Uh, there's a man working at a desk with what looks like a giant thimble over his head. Mm-hmm. There's a small glass peephole where mm-hmm. he's looking out. There's a tube that's connected to an oxygen tank. 
that is connected to right. the nose part of the mask. In this giant thimble, he's getting oxygen pumped in. Right. And there's another long tube where the mouth hole would be for him to, I would assume, breathe out carbon dioxide. Right. And it was supposedly designed to aid writers like yourself, Paul, <laughs> to kind of... So they would block out all distract distractions in like a right. sensory deprivation helmet. Okay. So that they would focus only on the page in front of them that they were writing. And the, it's the picture of the inventor of this, uh, Mr. Hugo Gernsback, right, who invented okay. this in 1925. I was going to say what era this was. It sounds very 1920s-ish, if it's real. Yes, it wasn't very successful, this invention. You think? Possibly because it looked so horrifying. I mean, you can... Fair enough, you know, it's like putting blinkers on a horse. That makes them concentrate on just what's in front of them. Hermetically sealing off your head. <laughs> less. <laughs> you, you haven't thought of this when you're doing your own writing work, Paul? Less conducive to creativity, I would have thought. Okay, so is the is the question, does this exist? Does this exist? And was this photo taken of this curious <sighs> invention? What an unusual lead up to that question we had. Okay. Um... It was very difficult to find creepy photos that I could use, all right? I had to dig what I could get. We're pushing the definition of macabre here. I think the whole episode's just sort of straight into it. I was so desperate for a theme. I was like, God. No one's asked you to do a theme. It's important to me. Self imposed. Okay. It was a yes or a yes. Um, it sounds very 1920s-ish. It sounds like the sort of thing someone might invent. The one thing that's making me think this is unusual, <laughs> apart from every word you've just said, is the fact that it needed an oxygen supply. Hmm. So it, was, it wasn't It was that it just sort of, like I say, blinkered your vision and, and muted sounds and stuff. Hmm. It's that it cut off your air supply. <laughs> That I find unusual. Like that's presumably not 100% necessary. It was a very heavy metal-looking thing. Yeah, but if, like, did it seal around the neck? Yes, it kind of went over the shoulders as With well. like what? Like a rubber matten or something? It was like I a diver's helmet. I think it helmet. was. It was a bit like a diver's helmet, but more terrifying. Why Why seal off the air supply? He's got and what the, if he's you got get the tube like, for the oxygen? Yeah, but you have to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, presumably. And if you've got mm. that muddled up, you're going to gas yourself. <laughs> well... That's on you. I mean, imagine if this caught on and people are just like, like me sitting working in Starbucks. There's <laughs> <laughs> a flat white, please. A blueberry muffin. I'll just get my helmet. I'll just... um, okay. I Honestly, I don't know. This could have come from the darkest of the darkest recesses of your already quite dark brain. Mm. But I think it might be true. It sounds very 1920s-ish. It sounds like the kind of madcap ludicrous invention that some moron would have come up with <laughs> so yeah I'm going to say that's true final answer yes it is true <laughs> <laughs> that picture exists please oh, google no. the isolator helmets if you want to see a picture <sighs> wow. if I remember we could, we might even tweet the picture of the isolator helmet I might even wear one for my next book <laughs> hold you to that <laughs> Right, well, that was an unusual one. A disaster of a fact, I think. <laughs> yeah, and well, yeah, and the score's now 3-2. So, yeah, you've got to pull me to a draw here. Mm. So it's all going to be on this last one. Um, I said before that I'm kind of on safer ground with this because I realised when I was researching this episode that, I, you know, I, I do haggard hooks. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've ever told really an etymology fact or a language fact. Aren't they all etymology facts? 
No, I mean in the podcast. Oh. <laughs> yeah, after six years, I've only just worked out that I <laughs> everything I post on Anger Talks is to do with language. Yeah, okay, I've already got a good feeling about this. What I meant was... Uh, <laughs> Wow. But I've never done an etymology fact on Yes or BS. Gotcha. Yeah. Because okay. I was thinking, I've seen some words on Haggard Hawks. Yeah, sometimes I tweet about words on it. <laughs> so continue. Yeah. Please you know, continue. There's like eight books about it as I've, well. I've had a bad 15 minutes this last second. Go on. Just I, just, just get cracking. You're finally feeling on uh, quite steady ground for I this last a, one. I need a drink. Yeah. So I thought I would tell you about uh, an interesting fact. The only word in the Oxford English Dictionary that is credited to um, a British monarch. So this is what we're going to talk about. And that monarch, um, I was going to say, do you want to have a guess? But the state that you're in at the minute. You... <laughs> <laughs> William the <IV>. Fourth. <laughs> no, it's, uh, well, I say monarch, but it's um, a consort. It's Anne Boleyn Ooh. is the only person who's credited with a, a, a word. And that word is festoonery, okay, which we'll get onto in a minute. Um, we, it's a word that hasn't been used in English for about 100 years. Mm-hmm. But we still use festoon, which is to sort of cover something in garlands or something. Mm-hmm. You would festoon something if you decorate it very ornately. That dates back to 1789. Before that, there was a noun festoon, which was another word for um, like a paper chain or a decorative chain or, or a garland or something. That goes back to 1686. But the word itself is really old. We borrowed it from French even earlier than that. In French, it's called a feston. And festonne means to sort of decorate something in French. And it's probably related to words like feast and festival in that it's kind of, you decorate something okay. at those sorts of things, which comes from Latin festa, Uncle Festa. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So, yeah, this is the only word, festoonery, which uh, the OED calls it a group of objects arranged in festoons or a festoon-like arrangement is a festoonery. So like loads of paper chains would be a festoonery or uh, the, the garlands that you put up on your front door when you know that I'm coming around. That would be that would be <laughs> a festoonery. When I lock my front door. <laughs> when you celebrate me leaving at the <laughs> end of the recording. The um, yeah, this is credited to Anne Boleyn. Okay, so some facts about Anne Boleyn. We don't know when she was born or where she was born. Really? Yeah, well, they kind of say circa 1501, but it could be about five years either side of that. No one really knows. And she's either born in Northampton, I think, or Kent. We just kind of don't even know where she was born. Was she not French? No. Oh. <laughs> You're supposed to be the history expert. Honestly. I'm having an absolute nightmare So today. she was the second wife of... Oh, I know this one. Henry VIII. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't there I get go. a bonus point yeah. back? Yeah. Um, they married in 1533 and then in 1536 she was... Beheaded. Beheaded, yes. Oh, um, we learned last week uh, she had a dog called Percoy. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, second shout out for Anne Boleyn in two weeks. You see? There you go. He's finally waking up. It's a shame (laughs) it's an hour too late. (laughs) Um, Yes, she was, of course, the mother of Elizabeth I. Her sister, Mary, was uh, Henry VIII's mistress. Yeah. Oh, because they made that film film. about that. And also there's a rumour that her mother was as well. Jeez, I mean, he, he got himself he, about it, Henry. He, he went through that family like a recessive gene, which <laughs> I think is a line off Fraser. <laughs> it's all common to you. Um, yeah, she was also, her mother Elizabeth 
was the cousin of someone called Marjorie Wentworth, which is the least glamorous name from Tudor history imaginable. Um, and Marjorie Wentworth was the mother of Jane Seymour, which means that Anne Boleyn was uh, not only beheaded, but she was replaced by her, her own second cousin. He didn't look very far, Henry VIII. It's really. a shallow old gene just... pool. <laughs> 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 Was he getting fatter by this point? He couldn't be bothered to Probably, yeah. go out the house. Yeah. Um, and they never got on. They used to have real catfights, apparently. She once snatched a picture of um, Henry that Jane had hanging around her neck so hard that she hurt her own hand. So they used to have real cat fights, apparently. But they did have a mutual friend, which was another of their cousins, called Sir Francis Bryan, who was also responsible, actually, for getting Jane the job in Henry's court. And it was to him, on the 3rd of December, 1533, that Anne Boleyn wrote a letter... Uh, while she was recuperating at Greenwich Palace. Um, so this is about three months, a little under three months after she's given birth to Elizabeth. It's about six months after she's been crowned. It's about a year after they've been married. So it's that kind of quite early still in, in her kind of reign as queen, I guess. And it was kind of like a mild winter, but it was quite a frosty winter, apparently. So there wasn't a, a snow on the ground or anything. Mm. And she was writing about how cold the palace is to recuperate. So... Um, she's given birth about three months earlier, but she's complaining about how cold Greenwich Palace is in this letter. And she talks about um, now that she's back up on her feet, she likes to go for a walk down an avenue of birch and willow trees, which was apparently down one side of the palace. And when these are covered in frost, she says that they uh, appear as garlands of crystals. Um, and that's why she likes to walk through it. And she says later that she calls this walkway her festoonery. And it's her one escape from the rest of the palace. And she writes this down in a letter. And this was discovered a couple of years ago. Well, I think it's been known about for a while, actually. But uh, the OEDs only just recently picked up on it. And this predates the earliest record of the word festoonery um, by 300 years. It was 1836 before then. And it is now the only word in the OED credited to an English king or queen. See, I would have thought there would be more words. No. Because writing tends to survive from those in power more than like lowly clerks and the like. Oh, yes. There are lots of words from like wardrobe records and things, Mm. um, but not from sort of personal writings of kings and queens. Gotcha. And the fact that she, in the court, says that this is what she calls this walkway kind of says this. It's just she basically made this word up. Whether it probably probably did exist in some form Mm. before then, but she's now credited with it in this letter. You know, I'm having such a nightmare on these facts today. Like, I don't even know which way to land on this one. <laughs> I was so confident when I started this, when I d- declared Bristol was in Devon. Oh, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> like, yeah. And the confidence has just collapsed. Mm. I can't wait. Really, I'm trying to, finding it difficult to interrogate this one because I don't know a lot about etymology. Mm. And I don't even know if I can question if it's even a French word. It sounds French. I can tell you that the etymology of it is correct. It does come from French and it probably is related to feast and, and it is, so festival. It's, it's not a word you've just made up. Oh, it is a word. That's right. It's definitely the, a word. the question it's... is whether the dictionary credits it, credits its earliest record, shall we say, mm. to, to Anne Boleyn. So what was the next record of Festoonery? It was a magazine. It's the Edinburgh Review, I think, which was in 1836. Mm. So it probably was used at some point in, in between, but it's, there's no textual record Mm. of it i'm slightly going to land on the side of it's true the fact that this is a word it was used in that magazine Mm. then you've just tacked on (laughs) anne boleyn at the end just because you would know i wouldn't have a clue about any sort of etymological fact and you think right i'll have him on this one yeah festoonery anne boleyn wrote oh yeah (laughs) i like walking around me festoonery when the palace is called obviously you've read this letter then have you (laughs) So, 
I don't think I can interrogate anymore. I'm going to say this is BS. And hopefully if I can pull this back to a draw, I might be able to rescue a scrap of dignity from this episode. <laughs> That's just the one goal that you've got in mind now. <laughs> That's just my daily diary. Did I rescue a scrap of dignity today? <laughs> and it's just no every day. <laughs> in a tear-stained page. <laughs> but no. BS, that is my final answer. Okay. Anne Boleyn invented the word festoonery. I don't believe she did. That story mm-hmm. is BS. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right. I was like, there isn't any words, as far as I can tell, that are credited to mm. any kings or queens. So I was like, I'll pick a queen. <laughs> yeah. I'll pick a random weird word. <laughs> and I'll say she invented I knew it. it. I'm starting to get yeah. the workings of your mind, James. <laughs> I can say, like, if, yeah, it wouldn't make a lot of sense etymologically mm. if a longer word came first, if mm. that makes sense. You'd, you Festoon would establish itself in the language and then festoonery would develop. You see, from I that. wouldn't even have a clue yeah. about that. Like, you could have literally said anything. <laughs> like, I, I have no idea that longer words would come later than shorter words. Yeah, usually, but... sometimes you clip them the other way they're called, called back formations if you mm. go the other way uh, so usually it's you start off with a word and then you add things to it and develop it that way so yeah that would have been a little bit of a clue but no that was all BS you see that makes sense yeah. but is it a clue for anyone who knows <laughs> <laughs> a clue for me I thought Anne Boleyn was from France <laughs> I think I was just confused because her dog had a French name. Oh, yeah. No, I think she was born in Kent. And I think what scrap of dignity I just rescued, I've just thrown away there. Wait, you pulled it to a draw, but... uh, At what cost? Are you happy with your performance today? I'm not in any way. (laughs) I peaked when I told that story about uh, the demons in Spain. Ah, yes. I kind of think you peaked when you said hello at the start. (laughs) (laughs) And then we had to have a gap while you looked up where Bristol was. (laughs) Oh, God, let's just end this here. (laughs) 